Earlier this week, um, I was thinking about and reflecting upon the Davis Nation's life here at Franklin. And this morning, Julie reminded me, nine years ago today was when we began working with the church here. And so it was a great, great week of reflection as I was going through all the memories of, of different things. And, and so as um, reflecting on this, and I was thinking about the sermon at hand, I couldn't help but think, well, Mitch, do you want this to be the last sermon? <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because we're talking about the, the subject matter about gods, right? There have been preachers. They get fired for a sermon like this because you're talking about the word gods, right? And so Julie's like, oh, so you want this to be the last Sunday? I said, no. <laughs> but I do want to deal with a subject matter that many preachers don't want to deal with. It's something that is very explicit in scriptures. And hopefully it is something that helps us to understand our walk with our God. But ultimately, I think the end will be something that is unmistakable and everyone can agree with, even if it's going to be hard to, to actually practice. And so I'm, I don't want to get into the, the end just yet. And so when we're talking about this concept of gods, it behooves me to, to make this statement. And so we're going to break it down real slow and easy because my English ain't the best. <laughs> so words mean different things to different people, Right? does. We need to take the same exact word, motif, and not everyone understands what the word means, even if you've heard it all your life. They, they mean different things to different people because different people come from different cultures and even subcultures. I mean, you can be from the South, but Texas, North Carolina, which one, right? So you have subcultures within a given culture. And then you got family culture, right? Whatever your upbringing is, the school you go to, the things you've learned, the life experiences you have, all that comes into play with culture. And as a result then, because those words take place in your unique life, even though you have a Bible dictionary, even if you have Webster's dictionary, you still convey different concepts, even if it's the same exact word. Right? So easy illustration, even if it's um, a word that whether you're new to it and how you use it may be different. Kind of like our children when they're learning words and you're like, oh, that's not how we use it here. Right? Or you can be an adult and you go to a church and you look about everyone and it's just like, it's like a home-like family. And so you're all homely. The ones that are laughing know the definition of homely. <laughs> the rest of us are like, yeah, what? what if we... <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> I was with the rest of us. <laughs> all good. Homely, not the best word to use, right? But again, again, you don't know the definition and how it's used. And so culture, everything dictates words being used. Another illustration. If I ask children, young little children, the word gay, Children would probably say homosexuality. That's how the word is used. Those of us who are much older and we're not in tune to the word gay today will say it means to be joyful. Same exact word, 
used differently depending on who you're talking to, depending on the culture. And so those are easy illustrations, right? And so there's subtleties within these words. And so when we come to scriptures, it's the same way when we're looking at words, right? For instance, case in point, I want you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. And then we're going to take that and apply it to the Shema in chapter 6. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, I want to use this as an example. See if we can make understanding of this concept about communicating with our words. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, and it says over here in verse, let me back up to verse 32. Ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing has ever happened or has ever um, heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? Think Moses, burning bush. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? Right? Think Israel themselves out of the land of Egypt. Done it by nations, by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror. All of which... The Lord, your God, did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. We're going to come back to this passage, by the way. Um, for going to be maybe not obvious to you now, but obvious if you ever take out one of those interlinears or reverse interlinears, use your Bible tools and look at words and see how the words are in the original language. So we'll come back to that. But to a modern American Christian, right, you read this passage and then you say to an ancient Jew, do you believe God is one? And the ancient Jew says, yes. And you're like, okay, wait, let me rephrase what I just said. Do you believe that there is one God? And an ancient Jew, not a modern Jew, an ancient Jew says, no. Now, how many of you are confused already? Anyone? Raise your hand. I mean, let me know you're confused. Okay, yeah, it sh we should be confused. Because in our minds, we have a preconceived idea from the way we were raised on Scripture on the word God. There is no other God. There's just God. And yet, in this very passage that we just read, the word that we refer to as God is not always translated as God. There's different translations for the same word. And so our English word doesn't always help us because of our preconceived notions that we have. And so I'm wanting to kind of take a step back into time and not impose our modern American view upon the word and how the word is used in scripture, but try our best to say, how did they look at that word? Not the word God, but the Hebrew word that the, that the English translators have given us as the word God. That's what we're going to do. If you're still not clear, that's fine. I'm going to try and do my best to make some clarity as we go further into the, the passages. So we're going to do this. We're going to look at this word. Instead of the word of God, 
or gods, we're going to use the word Elohim. So how many of you have ever actually heard that word, the word Elohim? Okay, I would say at least 75% of us, right? So including children here. So many of the children are the ones that didn't raise their hand. But Elohim is the word. Typically, as we're translating it from Hebrew into English, it is the word used most often as God, right? So to make sure we're on the same page, if we're talking about divine creatures with the same ability as who we call God, the answer is no, there is no other. So I want that to be clear so you can go, we don't have to fire Mitch today. Okay? So we're not talking about that. If we're talking about a spiritual being, that's a different ballgame. Okay? Spiritual being does not equal God necessarily. Okay? So that's what we're looking at. And so we had Mark read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want us to go back to this passage. I want us to look at that text. And then we're going to go backwards, kind of reverse engineer this, this Bible use of the word God or gods and, and whatever else we're going to be seeing from it. So notice what Paul is saying at the very beginning. And, and this needs to be restated in our modern context. Concerning things offered to idols, right? Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. The whole reason for this Bible study was because I was asked last week to go to Alabama and to share what my current studies, which has been about the last 15, 16 months on this word Elohim. And I was asked to come down to Alabama and share it. And when I did, there was one of the brethren there. They just thought, this guy has lost it. Right? Now, mind you, I was not wanting to come in and share this. This is something, Mitch, would you come in and share what your studies have been? Because we are studying on, this congregation is studying up on spiritual beings. And so I said, all right, I'd be happy to do so. And when we look at this passage, Paul is saying, you know, we all have knowledge you know what knowledge does? We get arrogant with our knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. On the other hand, love builds up. And so he makes that disclaimer, and then he goes on to this concept of knowledge. And notice what he says in verse 4 with regard to uh, idols. He said, therefore, as to the eating of food that's been offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. Remember that conversation? Modern American Christian with ancient Jew, right? We know that there is, uh, an idol is no real existence. There is no one, no God but one. For although there are, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. The play on words are, are fraught within this phrase. Number one, in Greek, as well as in Hebrew, there's no, no quotation marks. So there is no gods or lords. So there is... in intimation about translators imposing our views and thus we use quotation marks like gods they're not really existing right so the ones that are really existing we put them in quotation marks there was no such thing of, of that 
Secondly, in the Greek, the way it's provided, it seems like from what the way I've read it is, these are named gods, not so-called. So again, in English, it's like so-called gods. In Greek, it's these are named gods, right? Now, mind you, think about it. What are many Christians doing as they become Christians? Denouncing what? Idolatry. Why are they denouncing idolatry? Because they're providing a belief system that says, I am showing my allegiance to this one God, Yahweh, right? I'm giving up my gods. <clears throat> Zeus, <laughs> right? Whatever all the other gods, the name of these gods are, whether it's Baal, Dagon, Asherah, Mammon, well, all these different gods, I'm not going to worship these gods anymore. I'm worshiping this one God. And what he is saying is one of two things. We have supposed gods and real gods, or he's saying there are named gods and real gods. I'm okay with either translation, by the way, because the latter part of this passage, the Apostle Paul says, as there are, notice again, verse 5, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So... The question we have to ask ourselves is, do gods actually exist? And maybe the better way of saying it, rather than using the word gods, because that's the word in the English translation, right, is do spiritual beings exist? Very different concept for you probably hearing it. So how would we look at it? And that's why I did the article in the bulletin so we can study it further. Here's how the word Elohim is translated in English in the New American Standard Bible. Okay. These are the, the ways that the word Elohim is used. So Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. To us, in, instantly we go, God. To the Jews, they would instantly go, Yahweh. But it's not saying Yahweh here. It simply is saying Elohim, Right? The very word that is used for God of Elohim is the exact same word, no difference whatsoever in the word in and of itself. Now, there are qualifiers outside of this word. But the word itself is word that is used in Exodus chapter 18 with re reference to gods. Look at Exodus 18. So we know Genesis 1 verse 1. We can quote that. But look at Exodus. <clears throat> Here's how that same exact Hebrew word is used not in reference to Yahweh, but in reference to these other gods. So Israel has just left Egypt. That's the context, right? And within that context, notice, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord or that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how Yahweh delivered them, right? And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. If we read further on, notice the context of Jethro's mind or Jethro's um, voice of what he's talking about with them. Jethro said in verse 10, Blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11 is the focus. 
Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Yahweh is greater than all Elohim. That's what he's saying. And so if you use the word spiritual beings, then Yahweh is greater than all spiritual beings. Now, how do we know that? Number one, amongst others, is the fact that Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. These other spiritual beings did not. They are created, not creators. They're created by Yahweh. Secondly, for whoever these ancients were worshiping, these gods, right, the Egyptian gods, that's who the Egyptians were worshiping. And by the way, there were probably Jews worshiping some of these ancient gods of Egypt, right? They weren't all just gung-ho and only Yahweh, because this is all the way even through that captivity that we see this. For hundreds of years, even as they have a covenant relationship with Yahweh, they still worship these surrounding gods. But what Jethro is saying is, you told me all that took place. This God, Yahweh, he's more powerful than the other gods. That's what's being said, right? Genesis chapter 31, verse 30, we see the worshiping of these gods, Rachel and, uh, Rachel and Leah. Remember um, Leah? I think it was, I forget who it was, Rachel or Leah, that had the gods under the saddle. And Laban, uh, the father-in-law, says, ah, you've stolen my gods. You've stolen my idols, basically. Right? So that's what was happening. These gods were being worshipped by people, whether it be Israelites or non-Israelites. They had been worshipped. Or go to Genesis chapter 41, verse 38. Pharaoh says to Joseph, Joseph, you can interpret these dreams. You have a Elohim spirit in you. Right? You have a spirit of God in you. That's the, the way it's translated in some Bible English translations. But you've got this concept of divine spirit. You have a divine spirit. So in the New American Standard Version. Or Exodus chapter 22. When you read Exodus 22 and you, you go to this village and you've got a dispute, you've got to settle, you go to the Elohim. Well, in English translations, it's the word judges. And while there are people that, that have a qualm in the translation, they don't think the word judges is the appropriate translation, it's still the translation in the New American Standard. Okay? So if it's true, if the New American Standard is true in the translation, then judges are being used. Not God, not gods, not divine spirit. But who are these judges supposed to be like? Spiritually minded men. That's who you're supposed to go to. That's the concept. Same word is in Psalm 82, verse 1. When you read Psalm, and Psalm 82 is a, is a great passage dealing with this very concept of dealing with spiritual beings, all right? But in the English translation, New American Standard, rulers are being used rather than judges or these other ones. Or how about 1 Kings chapter 11, right? The worship of Asherah. So, we see a goddess. So it's not male or female. It's just, in this case, it's use of a female god, lowercase g. Or in, in uh, Genesis 23, speaking of one who is mighty, right? Or in Malachi's case, the word godly, right? 
If you look at the last book of the Bible in chapter 2, in fact, we're going to fast forward some of these passages and look at Malachi 2 real quick. Notice how this word is used in contrast to the word God or gods. So again, Malachi is using the word Elohim to give us a sense of what this word and how it's being used can be much greater than what we as moderns look at and think it's got to only refer to Yahweh, to the God that we know about, right? So again, Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. Here's the second thing that you do in profaning my covenant with, with me. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because Yahweh has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. And though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Right? Or in, this is the ESV I'm reading from, but in New New American Standard, this godly spirit, if you will. And so concepts being that the word Elohim is not just who we call God. That's the point that I'm trying to make. All kinds of use, much broader than simply God. But here's one thing that is in common. All of these words and how they're used as loosely as we can see it being used refer to something spiritual, right? A godly spirit or a spiritual spirit, someone who's spiritually minded, or a spiritual being, Whether these beings are real or not, they're regarded as being real spiritual beings, okay? Lots of these words in the Old Testament, not just Genesis 1 verse 1 that we have the word Elohim in reference to who we call God. So that's one thing that is very important if we're looking at this word. Now, if we look at this as spiritual beings then, then would we not say that God is a spiritual being? John chapter 4, verse 24. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Right? God is a spirit. We know that. Because God is outside of the physical creation, spiritual being. Angels are told, biblically speaking, to be spiritual beings. No one's ever questioned that. Right? Angels, spiritual beings. How do angels um, show up in scripture? If you read in your Bible readings, check this out. Really, really cool at times. You'll say angel and says man. Angel, man. Well, which is it? Yes. Spiritual beings that look like and behave like man. Think of Genesis chapter 18. Remember Abraham with the two angels and then there was another one, angel of the Lord. And angel of the Lord, Lord. Angel of the Lord, Lord, or angel of Yahweh, Yahweh. Angel of Yahweh, Yahweh. So back and forth. Which is it? Yes. Angel of Yahweh and Yahweh in the context. Angels, men. Angels, men. Which is it? Yes. Both. They they look like and act like men, but they're referenced at various points of the narration as angels. Well, how's how's that possible? Well, Remember Jesus after he was resurrected? He's resurrected. Later on, he reappears to men, right? Whether on the road 
um, to Emmaus or amongst his disciples, what is Jesus able to do? He ate with his disciples. They were able to touch him. Thomas, doubting Thomas, was able to physically touch him. There's something about Jesus. After he was resurrected, we see him in this state, however you want to call him, after post-resurrection, where they were able to have this physical interaction. And so you see that. But about the angels, angelos, right, in the Greek word, well, when we look at these angels, what, what does the scripture say? Go to Psalm 8 and see if you remember this passage. It's in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 as well. But Psalm 8, read this passage with me. <clears throat> Psalm All right. Verse 1, reading through verse 5. O Lord, our Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name, Yahweh, in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Man and son of man is basically a classification of mankind. Basically, the psalmist is saying, when you look at all your creation of the universe and all that you made, including the heavenly bodies, why are you even mindful of us? We're just... People of dust, people of earth. Yet, verse 5, regarding man, you have made him a little, a little lower than, and this is the English Standard Version I'm reading from, but the ESV is different than the New American Standard. New American Standard will say something different. ESV says, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. In Hebrew, regardless of your English translation, you made him a little lower than Elohim. You made man a little lower than in English translations, some translations, angels, right? Some of you have English translations that use the word angels. And it's used that way in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. Because the Hebrew writer quotes from Psalm 8, and explicitly in Greek, it's angelos, which is, you made him, man, a little lower than angels. What are these angels? ESV uses heavenly beings or spiritual beings in other translations. So angels are spiritual beings. We had no qualms about that. Demons are spiritual beings, right? We, we can read uh, in Luke chapter 8, there was a man that was possessed by many demons. What was his name? Legion. How, how do beings live in a physical individual? Well, the Bible tells us they're spiritual beings. That's how. And that's why. Or Matthew chapter 4, when the devil or Satan, depending on, again, how are your translations in English, takes Jesus after he's been taken to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it says. And then Satan says to him, so it's used differently in Mark four, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, worship me, devil says to Jesus. And he says, go, Satan, 
You shall only worship God. So in that pretty amazing passage, it's like this, this spiritual um, dialogue going on between Jesus and Satan. Well, demons. What does the Bible in the Old Testament say? This is where Elohim comes into place again. In Deuteronomy 32, I want you to read this passage with me as well because this one is very, uh, very key in understanding how demons are viewed this way because the same word Elohim is being used for demons. And then we're like, how is demons used this way? Well, notice. Deuteronomy 32. <clears throat> in reference to the forefathers, this is the song of Moses, right? Speaking of their forefathers, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Or to gods they had never known. That's the English Standard Version. Some of your versions are like, who are not gods, right? They're, they're not God himself. They're not Elohim, but yet the next verse, they are Elohim, but they, they didn't know them as such. To new gods that had come recently. So in other words, um, verse 17, the first line in the couplet, right? You Remember, you have Hebrew parallelisms that we talked about in our Bible studies. They sacrifice to demons, verse, the latter part of verse, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers never dreaded. So in that passage, the words demons and the word gods are in reference to the same being of individuals that were worshipped in the past. So you have that. Or 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel 28, Saul, bad king by now. Doesn't love God. In the, he's not worshiping Yahweh. And David is his enemy. He wants to know information. And what, he goes against the covenant relationship with Yahweh. And he conjures up or he goes to a medium. He goes to a spiritist. He goes to the witch of Endor. Right? And this witch of Endor actually conjures up Samuel. Samuel's been dead. She gets nervous. She knows she's not supposed to be doing this because Saul's like going to kill anyone that's supposed to be a medium that conjures up these demons because it's against Yahweh. But yet, that's what he's doing. He's wanting her to break the law. And she does. She sees who it is and doesn't want to say anything to him. Saul basically says, again, 1 Samuel 28, read verse 13. Tell me, who do you see? I saw Elohim ascending from the earth or from the deep, from the grave. So the word Elohim is used not just for God, not just for angels, not just in reference to demons, but to a deceased human being. In Samuel's case, Elohim. Now, some would say, well, that's her and she's not a follower, a believer of God. Here's the writer of a Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew book, writing the event and simply telling it. He's not trying to prove anything. He's just saying, here's what she said. Elohim came up from the earth. So you have that. Or how about idols? Idols are nothing more than wood or stone or metal. Okay? They're nothing more. But what do they represent? That's who people were worshiping. Right? 
So these idols represented gods, whether they are real gods or fake gods. So real gods, they're not making them up. They're worshiping these gods. Fake gods made up in the mind. And as far as fake gods, uh, I don't even have it on here, but I think it's Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45, in the middle of of the chapter. Remember, the man takes wood and he cuts it. And with one part of the wood, he burns it, makes a fire from it. And the other part, he carves it out and bows down and worships that piece of wood. What did that wood represent? And that's the point. These wood or the woods or the gods represented certain things that people worshipped. So go back to the book of Exodus. Remember, Israel has now come out of Egypt. They have agreed in Exodus 19 to have a covenant relationship with God. Right? So in the very first law God says is, you shall have what? No other gods before me. And what else should you not do? Nor make any carved images. Right? So very clearly, you shall not go after these other gods. Well, what was Israel doing? They were going after other gods. I mean, no sooner than that covenant relationship, we see in Exodus chapter 32, when Moses is on the mountain with God and Aaron is with the people down below, what are they doing? Getting all their jewelry, putting the fire, poof, out comes a God. It didn't happen that way, but that's the way Aaron explains it, right? Oh, they gave me all the jewelry, and all of a sudden, out comes this God, this calf, this golden calf. Well, it's because even the Israelites, they're not going to be worshiping something that they believe to be fake. They're not like, hmm, Yahweh, something that is not even real. Unicorn, we're going to worship unicorn. No, they believe that these gods were real spiritual entities. Just because you and I may not believe necessarily that they are real spiritual entities doesn't mean that they did not. So God is telling them, have no other gods before me. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 34 and 35. This will be the last Old Testament passage that we really look at. But I want you to go there and see here in this passage how these gods would be worshipped. So 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 34. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear Yahweh, right? Because Yahweh said, have no other gods before me. They do not fear Yahweh, and they do not follow the statutes or rules of the law or the commandments that Yahweh commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord, or Yahweh, made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods. Why? Because they did fear them. They believe if they didn't worship these gods, those gods would wreak havoc and judgment upon them. But they did not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them. Brethren, these Jews believed in other gods. They believed in other spiritual beings and bowed down and worshiped them. And without going into any detail of who these beings are, what they did, and how they interacted. The fact was, God, Yahweh, says, that's what your forefathers were doing, going after these gods, which is the same thing that many of them were still doing during this time. 
They were not like any different than their forefathers. And so when we go back to a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul says, even if there are so-called gods, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us Christians, there's only one, Yahweh. Now, he doesn't say that. I'm extrapolating. There's for us one God, Yahweh. So, Elohim is used in various contexts. God, angels, demons, deceased Samuel, as we saw, and idols that had represented gods, whether they be real or fake gods. And so, if we were to impose our modern view upon Scripture... Many would say gods don't exist because I've studied with Christians that said that. But the Bible says differently. The Bible shows that there were gods that existed. Baal, the god of the storm, right? Babylonian gods. He's the god that was the cloud rider. And what does Yahweh do through the book of Daniel? He shows another to be a cloud rider greater than that Baal. Or the gods of Egypt, and God, Yahweh, shows himself greater than the gods of Egypt. Right? These people believed in these gods and worshipped these gods. God showed them above them. And so that's why we have passages like Ephesians chapter 6. And what we do with our children is we tell our children to quote the armor of God. But what does it say before that? Right? Put on the whole armor of God that you may do what? Stand against what or who? The wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against? Spiritual beings that are evil. So the question, brethren, is do we really believe in spiritual beings? Now, I don't know how all this works, plays out. All I can tell you is Paul is talking about something he believes to be real. And again, if we're talking about being believers of God's word... God's word says these things exist, right? Otherwise, are we making up stuff? You know, is God over things that are fake? Imagine you know, if I said I was a champion of nothing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then you're not much of a champion. What if over all the people that are doing really, really well in whatever thing that you're involved in, and you beat them all. Oh, Michael Jordan, you're the, the heir, <laughs> right? You're the best. But you're not going against nothing. You're going against other things. And so it would behoove us to give credit that, you know, these things exist, right? Again, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, very clearly, we wrestle against Wickedness in heavenly places. And sometimes I think because we have evolved in our societies and we've grown up so much with our modern way of viewing things that we discredit superstitious things. We call them superstition. Well, I believe superstition exists. In other words, things can be made up in a mind that are superstitious. I also believe in the scriptures that do say that these Heavenly places that hold wicked beings also exist. How they work, I have no clue at times. I just see how they work in scripture and assume that that's how they work in life. 
And so when we're talking about things that are very difficult for us, brethren, we don't want to swipe it under our rug or sweep it under our rug and say, these things don't exist. Well, what does the Bible say? There's a lot of passages that have not been looked at that we looked at probably for the first time this morning, right? Samuel is referred to as Elohim. He's not God, right? He's deceased. And what happens when, you, when your body dies? It goes to the earth. What happens to your spirit? goes to God, as some would say. But the, the witch or the medium says, no, this spirit came up, was talked to, had dialogue. It was a spiritual being, Samuel. We have other passages that we could be looking at. But here's the bottom line for us. And this is where when we look at this text that we got to understand what's important. Well, let me go back to that text. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, whom are all things, and we exist for him. There's one God. Okay, if there's one God, there's one Lord Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? God, right? In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. Word was God. Application for us is this. Remember I was mentioning among the gods, Baal, Asherah, Dagon, and I mentioned mammon. You cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve God and mammon. We worship gods, whether we realize it or not. We just don't call it gods. We use more fancy words or evolutionized words. And some of those words is that, you know what? I have things that I put before God. Right? My work comes before God. I love money. You know, I, I love recreation. These are things I think David was even wanting to study about in our study on, on Jesus. Brethren, in the old days, you know what they referred to that as? Idolatry. The Bible says covetousness is idolatry. Do we covet today? Christians, I'm not talking about non-believers, I'm talking about Christians. Are there times when Yahweh, who we put our trust in, our covenant relationship in, do we not at times forsake that covenant because we have covetousness of things other than Yahweh? The answer is yes. And what Paul is saying to those in the first century is, beware of worshiping these false gods. They'll, they'll really wreak havoc on your life. Brethren, I think in the 21st century, we're seeing what happens when we covet things, drugs, how it ruins us, right? When we covet alcohol, when we covet uh, smoking of, of marijuana, or we covet um, whatever it may be, video games. I mean, research is showing how nasty video games can be to our mental well-being. There's a number of, it's not one thing. We can go on to other things, caffeine, sugar, all kinds of things that we can covet. Idolatry. And whether it's real or not, to you, in your mind, like, ah, I can handle my coffee, but I got to have it before I start my day. We laugh about that, right? We all laugh about it. We send memes to each other. Where's Martha? No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, Martha, I had to use you. <laughs> it's no big deal to us. Biblical writers say otherwise. It's a big deal. God is 
who we put our trust in, not just in word, but in deed. And so remember who our Christians worship. We, whether we are, whoever you are in this, in this building right now, hearing this lesson, whether you actually believe that, that spiritual beings exist, and I think it's explicit in Scripture, spiritual beings do exist, and they are sometimes referred to as, quote, unquote, in English, gods, not Yahweh. They're not creators. They don't have his power, his authority, right? It's limited in some capacity, but they have a capacity of some influence of power and dominion, whether they be demons or other angels or what have you. Our covenant relationship is with Yahweh. That's why we became Christians. We're saved by him, his precious blood through his son that he gave to us. We are saved by his grace, his mercy, not by any of these other beings, whether they be known as real or fake. And that's who our allegiance is to. And when you walk out of this room, regardless of what you believe, let your actions show what you say you believe, that God is one and him only do I serve. Let it show by the way you live your life. And so if you're here this morning, you live in an American society, and by and large, we don't believe in these types of beings. That's, stats show that. Research shows it. Go to other parts of the world. They believe in gods. Come to Hawaii. There's a god, a demigod called Maui. You might have heard of him. Maybe a movie made after him. Or Madame Pele, the goddess of the volcano. Just go to the islands. They're worshipped, even to this day. For us, Yahweh. And if you want that relationship with God, he wants you and he wants only you. And he wants you to know he is the one, he is the only one who you worship, who you serve. And you can come to him today. You can be baptized into Jesus Christ to have your sins washed away through his beloved son. And rise to walk in newness of life, putting away all things, especially those idols that God says to have none before. That's your invitation. And I hope it helps you in your current Bible studies. For those of you that this is like, okay, we need to study this, listen to the sermon over and over. Go through these passages, read them, study them. Passages that you probably glossed over. They're there. Ample passages. But I hope this sermon helps you.